0: I will pick up a reading in Genesis chapter 27. I'll read verses 8 through 10, and then I'll jump down and pick up a couple more. So verse 8 of Genesis chapter 27, this is Rebecca speaking. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for for thy father such as thou loveth. And thou shalt bring it to thy father that he may eat and that he may bless thee before his death. Now let's jump down to 26, verse 26 through 29. And he came near, that would be Jacob came near to Isaac, his father, and he came near and kissed him and he smelled the raiment of his, and the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee and blessed be he that blessed thee. Now down to verse 36. I'll pick up the last sentence and then go on through verse 40. Verse 36. And he said, this would be... Um, Esau, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And all God's people said, "Amen." Amen. Our Heavenly Father, our desire now is to see Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross May, being an atonement for sin. And we pray The Lord, that you will open this up, that we might see this from Genesis chapter 27. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, last week, as I had mentioned, we had read the entirety of Genesis chapter 27, and um, it's a rather strange um, series of events that took place there where Jacob is told by his mother to impersonate his uh, brother Esau. We read that Esau was loved of uh, Isaac and that Jacob was loved of uh, Rebekah. And so we saw some peculiarity in that, which we're going to develop a little bit more today. Um, But a strange thing that she would tell him to go get some kids of the goats and essentially dress himself up to look like his brother and then come before his father Isaac and receive the blessing. So um, just a brief review of that. But... um, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper and look at some another factor with respect to those two kids of the goats. Um, so last week, we looked at the big picture there in terms of what happened in Genesis 27. Um, our deacon read for us this morning. Leviticus chapter 10, the first three verses there, and then he read um, most of Leviticus um, 16. And there we saw in Leviticus chapter 10, you have to pay attention to that. Imagine, if you will, if you had been witness to what took place in Leviticus chapter 10 there, the first three verses, um, where Aaron's two sons offered strange fire before the Lord, meaning they offered something that was not in accordance with the way God had prescribed it should be offered, And the result was that they were on the spot, burnt from the Lord. A fire came out from before the Lord, and they were burnt. The fire devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Aaron, as you can see, as we read, kept his peace. (laughs) He's like, I think I get the message here that I better do what God says according to the means and agency by which God has prescribed that it should be done. Um, God is telling us and everybody that there is only one way to approach him. And this, of course, in that case was to be through the offering that God had prescribed. God has told us very clearly that there is only one way to approach the father and that is through the son. Approach any other way and you will be cast into the lake of fire and suffer the effects of the second death. That is defined in Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 where it tells us what the second death is. The second death is to be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus, who is God incarnate, Jesus in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, said very plainly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Very clear, and the lesson is set forth right there in Leviticus chapter 10 that you're going to do it this way or you're going to die. You will approach me by the methodology that I have prescribed through the priest, through the offering. Um, All of which typify Christ, which we'll see later. If you don't do it that way, um, you're toast. And that was the main point of last week's sermon. Rebekah told Jacob to obey her voice according to that which she commanded him. It was to be done exactly, Jacob was to do exactly what um, Rebekah had told him. He was told how he was to approach the Father that he would receive his blessing. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2 and verse 13, it says this twice in Leviticus 16. God warns Moses that the high priest will die if he does not follow God's instructions. You will do it this way, verse 2, that he die not. Same thing in verse 13. Do it this way that he die not. So there's a little bit of pressure on Aaron that he would follow the prescription um, that God had given Moses in terms of what he should do his two sons had been consumed by fire by the Lord and killed on the spot. So I'm sure he was paying attention when Moses gave him the instructions about how God would be approached. As all men should when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one cometh to the Father but by me. So we should appreciate that only through Christ can God be approached that we would receive the blessing. So that was the first lesson we learned last week. The second lesson uh, that we learned last week, second major point, was that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, we saw last week that this whole process was steeped in sin. Um, But again, everything worked out for Jacob's good. God having foreknown Jacob and loving Jacob and predestinated Jacob to be conformed to the image of Christ, works all things out for Jacob's good and the good of all those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So that means what happened in Genesis chapter 27 worked for Jacob's good. It worked for Isaac's good. It worked for Rebecca's good. It worked for Abraham's good. It works for the good of all Christians throughout all history even unto this very day, and will continue to work for the good of all the saints until Christ comes. Um, But it did not work for the good of Esau, and that we saw, because Esau is not to be numbered with God's elect. Respecting Jacob and Esau, the Lord tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, he says, beginning in verse 11, for the children, I'll pick it up, in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, and not of works, but of him that calleth, he's drawing a conclusion here based on what God had told Rebekah. when she inquired of him that, hey, before these two children were even born, God had ordained that the elder would serve the younger. And so he's extrapolating from that. He's also quoting what's written in Malachi, where it says that Jacob, thy love, and Esau have I hated. Verse 12, and it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, this would be from Malachi chapter 1, the first two <clears throat> verses, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Of course there's not unrighteousness with God. God is sovereign over all, and he can make of the same lump one clay for, um, um, for uh, glory, one, one lump for mercy, and one lump for um, destruction. So with an understanding of what is written there in Romans chapter 9, Uh, we review again what it says in Genesis 25, verses 22 and 23. It's speaking about the children that are within Rebekah's womb. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So God is laying forth what um, should be the expectation for these two sons of, of Rebecca? He's giving a, he's, she's receiving prophecy in terms of how this would go. And then, of course, in the book of Romans, we get the spiritual truth that is set before us here, so that we can appreciate the doctrine of election. Um, so again, what takes place in Genesis 27? we appreciate that it works for Jacob's um, good though it be steeped in sin, uh, which sets before us the spiritual truth and spiritual reality is that God works with sinful people and works with their sin for their good. And I hope you've seen that in your life because I know I have seen it in mine. He works with sinful people and with their sin for their good. Now, what we might mean for evil God means for our good. You'll recall that when Jacob's son, he hasn't yet been born yet, but when Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery, after he's been lifted up as the prime minister of Egypt, he says to his brothers, not once but twice, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God worked through the sinful people and their sin to um, provide for the um, deliverance in terms of of surviving through the um, famine for um, Jacob and his entire family. So it proved to be for their good, though they meant it for evil. An example of how God works with um, the human, through human agency to um, effect that which is good for his uh, people, the ones whom love him and the ones whom are called according to his purpose. Now, the taking and the slaying and the crucifying of uh, Jesus the Christ um, who is, as I said before, God incarnate, was obviously meant by men for evil, and yet it was meant by God for our good, for indeed the whole Old Testament prophesied that that very thing would happen. And in Leviticus 16, you can appreciate why it happened and what it was supposed to affect through um, his death. So it was meant for evil by men, and yet was meant by God for our good, and indeed it was for our good. So... For by the death of Christ, we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are reconciled to God and draw near to God our sins covered by his death, by whom we receive the atonement. Now, that's a mouthful, and on your sheet there, I actually covered four different scriptures to make that statement. So I'm going to read it again. For by the death of Christ, we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are reconciled to God and draw near to God, our sins are covered by the death of Christ, by whom we receive the atonement. And all of these things are set before us here in shadow and type and allegorically in Genesis chapter 27. So last week we saw that Jacob represented all the elect and Isaac represented. God the Father and, Re- and Rebekah represented the Holy Ghost whose commandments must be followed exactly if Jacob would approach his father and receive the blessing reserved for the firstborn. Jacob was dressed up like Esau, the firstborn, and went into his father and received the blessing. In this context, Esau represents Christ, who is the firstborn of every creature, he's the first begotten from the dead, and he is the firstborn in the context he has by he has the preeminence of all things. So the lesson that is taught here, as I said last week, is if you want to go to God the Father, you must look like Christ. You must be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what Jacob does when he follows his mother's instructions to the letter. In Hebrews 7, 19, it says that it is by a, quote, better hope that we draw nigh unto God. Christ is that better hope by which we draw near to God. Absent the work of Christ, we cannot be near to God. And that is the truth that is set before us here in Genesis 27. I'm emphasizing the word near to God. In verse 21, Of Genesis 27, Jacob is told to come near his father. In verse 22, we read, Jacob went near to his father. In verse 25, the father tells his son to come near, and the son comes near. In verse 26, the father tells his son Jacob to come near and kiss him. In verse 27, the son came near and kissed the father. And so you have Three times in this section here, the Father tells the Son to draw near, and the Son, in fact, does draw near in obedience, helping us to appreciate God's purpose in the atonement, that we should be united with God, blessed by God, in a loving relationship with God, drawing near to God the Father. So Jacob, he's covered by his mother's, he's covered by his mother in the skins of the two good kids of the goats, which we mentioned last week actually come from the father's flock, and he draws near to his father. Now, in this context, Esau represents the non elect. You'll notice that he is not covered by the skins of the two uh, good kids, nor does he draw near the father, nor is he invited to draw near the father. He has not received the atonement that is typified by the two kids. He does not kiss the father, and he does not receive the blessing of the firstborn. So, God is teaching a lot of interesting things with respect to the atonement in what takes place here in Genesis chapter 27. And what does he do as a result of what happened to him? He weeps because of it, as shall all people who do not kiss. God when they have the opportunity to do so. On the last day, when these people have been cast out, the Bible tells us, quote, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, not unlike what took place with respect to Esau here. Esau here is typifying that what takes place when you don't receive the blessing of the Father and you're not invited to draw near and and kiss the Father is there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as it is written in Psalm chapter two verse twelve, it says, "Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with thee, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little." Now, keep in mind that Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." So to kiss the Son is to kiss the Father. And verse, uh, as uh, Psalm two twelve uh, continues, it concludes with, "Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him." And so Jacob put his trust in his mother. He was covered up by the skins of the two kid goats. He obeyed her. He went in. He kissed the father. He was invited to draw near unto him, and he received the blessing. Um, so looking back at verse 9 of Genesis 27, where Jacob is told to fetch the two good kids from the father, we ask ourselves, and this helps you know, take our thinking somewhere else, does it really take two kids to cover his hands in the back of his neck? Is his father really going to eat two kids? That's a lot. So God is clearly trying to teach us something here. Surely one would be enough for that purpose that took place there in Genesis 27. But God has, you can find every doctrine in the in the book of Genesis. There's always a, an, an allusion to it, um, either in shadow type allegory or sometimes very clearly speaking. We didn't cover this in Genesis 15, but the... Um, The red heifer is offered up there for the cleansing of of sin. We didn't develop it, but everything, every offering appears in the uh, the book of uh, Genesis. So respecting the two goats uh, and Isaac's two sons, we're going to see another brief parallel here. We begin to see the um, development of a redemptive spiritual parallel, which ultimately leads to Jesus Christ, by whom we have the atonement. In Genesis chapter 27, we have two kids of the goats, both are which are lost to the father. This process cost him two goats. Both goats were lost to the father. Um, we note that in Genesis 27, that one son goes near to the father, that's Jacob, while the other son is sent out to the field. And now you hopefully can begin to see a parallel between what takes place here and what takes place in Leviticus chapter 16, which we're gonna leap forward and see what happened with respect to Christ, who is the anti-type of all of the types in here. In Leviticus 16, which our deacon read earlier, we see that the two kids of the goats figure uh, prominently in the Israelites' observance of the Day of Atonement. One kid is offered up as a sacrifice for sin, the blood of which is brought into the Holy of Holies sprinkled upon the mercy seat, the process of which brings the priest near to God. The other goat is led by the hands of a, quote, fit man, which in the Hebrew means a man of opportunity or a chosen man, and is led out into the wilderness after the high priest has placed his hands upon the head of that goat and confessed all the sins of the people, putting sin out from Israel. All this and more was to be done to symbolically atone for the people of God. I say symbolically because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. All of these things are but shadows and types of what Christ would do for his people. So when we consider what Christ did, or what God did to Christ, if we roll the clock forward approximately 1,860 years from where the two goats are taken by Rebekah, we roll the clock forward from there to uh, Jerusalem. In A.D. 33, we will find two men set before the congregation or masses of the people. These two men are Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas, we're told in the scripture, is a robber, He was guilty of sedition, which is rebellion, and he is a murderer. And I hope you can appreciate that he represents all of us. We would steal God's glory. That makes us robbers. We have been in rebellion against God. That means we're guilty of sedition. And we have hateful hearts, which makes us guilty of murder. That's what the Lord says, I believe, on the Sermon on the Mount. He, So Barabbas and Christ are set before the people, and Pilate says of Jesus I find no fault in him. Elsewhere it says there is nothing worthy of death. There are several people that proclaim Christ to be innocent. So recall from Leviticus 16.8 that Aaron the high priest would cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat, which is to be let out into the wilderness. And so it is with Christ Jesus and Barabbas. One is to be set free. Now in John chapter 18, verses 39 through um, 40, just two verses there. Um, Pilate is speaking to the multitudes, and he says, but ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, not this man, meaning not Jesus, but Barabbas. So Barabbas is set free like the scapegoat and Jesus Christ is scourged, bloodied, and crucified. He is the antitype of the goat that was killed for the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, the blood of which was sprinkled upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now, what do you suppose the mercy seat represents? Well, it represents Christ himself. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the Lord says, Whom God hath set forth... To be a propitiation through faith in his blood. He's speaking of Christ, Christ is who God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. The word propitiation is translated elsewhere. It only appears twice in the Bible. It's translated elsewhere in Romans, excuse me, in Hebrews 9 verse five as mercy seat, as mercy seat. Now, when you think about what is in the Ark of the Covenant, there is Aaron's rod that budded, there is the manna, golden pot of manna from heaven and there are the Ten Commandments. Um, what do you suppose would happen to you if the mercy seat were removed and you stood before the law of God? You will be slain. That is what happens in First Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. When the ark had been taken uh, by the Philistines, things did not go well for them there, so they put the, the ark of the covenant back on a cart. It was drawn by a couple of milk kine, and it, they uh, drew it back into Israel. And the people, the men of Bethlehemus, saw it, rejoiced, and removed the cover to make sure there was still the law, the Ten Commandments, the man uh, pot of manna, and the uh, Aaron's rod that budded. So they opened it, they removed the mercy seat, and looked upon the law. And the scripture says that 50,070 men were slain by God. So... Christ represents the mercy seat upon which the blood is sprinkled and uh, he stands between us and the law, having fulfilled the law uh, for us. Now, I've gotten a little bit off the point here about the uh, scapegoats, but I wanted you to appreciate that he is the mercy seat and his blood is sprinkled on himself um, as it should be done with the, the goat that's offered up to the Lord. Now, all of these are shadows and types. They point to Christ so we can be sure that the scapegoat Upon whose head was confessed all the iniquities, the transgressions, and sin of the children of Israel, does not actually point to Barabbas, but it points to Christ. So I, I always have to give kind of a qualifier here. I want us to appreciate that all of the types in the Bible point to Christ, they don't point to other people. Types don't point to types, types point to the anti type, which is Christ. So if you've ever seen a one act play off Broadway, one character plays everybody. They'll go out, they'll change their clothes, they'll run back in, but it's the same person. So everything here, Barabbas um, stands in place of Christ until we can shift around and we can appreciate that Christ himself is a scapegoat. He's the goat offered to the Lord. He's the bullock. He's the ram. Um, He's the two doves that are sacrificed. He is everything points to him and represents him. So what do you suppose the crown of thorns represent that was placed on Christ's head? Well, From Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, and Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, we can appreciate that thorns and thistles represent sin. So, when a crown of thorns is plated by the hands of man and put on Jesus' head, we can appreciate that those thorns represent our sins and they have been placed upon Christ, in whom was found no fault. And like the goat, of Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, that is, sent away by the hands of a fit man, a man of opportunity, or chosen man, I'll put all that in quotes, so too was Christ sent to Golgotha. And in verse 32 of Matthew 27, we read, and as they came out, that would mean come out of the city, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So, again, we can appreciate that all of these things come together with respect to Christ. Just as the scapegoat was let out, the sins were confessed on his head, and he was let out, so too with Christ. Crown of thorns was put on his head as he was going to Golgotha. They compelled Simon of Cyrene to be that fit man, man of opportunity, chosen man, to lead him to Golgotha. Now, in Leviticus 16.22, it says that the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not Inhabited, In Isaiah 53, we learn of the Lord, Isaiah 53, verse 8, and that Christ was, quote, cut off from the land of the living when he was slain on the cross with a crown of thorns upon his head. So Christ was led out to a place not inhabited. Continuing in Leviticus sixteen twenty-two, we read that, The fit man shall let go of the goat in the wilderness, our sins upon him, And so as God has removed our sins from us, we read in um, Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So Christ, bearing our sins, takes them away from us. As far as the east is from the west, he's led out into the wilderness. He's led out to a place not inhabited. That's all figurative of him going to the cross and dying for our sins, separating us. From our sins. So, again, I want you to appreciate that both of these goats represent Christ, and do all of the uh, sacrifices, and indeed the, priest, the priests themselves also represent Christ. So, back here in Genesis 27, we should appreciate that both of these two good kids of the goats represent Christ. As Jacob is covered with them and invited to draw near his father, so too are we invited to draw near to our heavenly father covered in Christ, where we are eternally blessed. Now, as I said last week, in answer to Esau's lamentable question, hast thou but one blessing, my father? The answer is, is yes, there is truly but one blessing, and that is to be blessed with Christ. All blessings are subordinate to that. In Ephesians 1.3, we read, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We've received multiple blessings, but they all flow through Christ. They are a result of us being blessed with Christ, being in Christ and Christ in us. So now I want to compare and contrast what Isaac said to Jacob and what Isaac said to Esau in terms of their blessings. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, the Lord tells us that by faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So I want us to appreciate that um, Isaac was led by the Lord in terms of the uh, blessings that he conferred on these two people. Whatever Isaac's intentions had been, our sovereign God superintended the affairs of all the parties involved, and the blessing was conferred exactly as God intended it would be conferred. I'm going to read now verses 27 and 29 of Genesis 27 to set this before us. And he came near and blessed him and smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blessed thee. The blessings given to um, Jacob and to Esau are very different blessings. They sound very similar, but they're actually very different. There's uh, something that, which is not apparent in the English, but it's apparent in the Hebrew, is that there is a play upon words here. So in addition to these blessings being reversed in terms of their order, there's a play upon words here that would help us to appreciate what is taking place here. Now, with respect to Jacob, the heavenly blessing goes first. Matthew 6.21 says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I want us to appreciate that Jacob's heart is heaven bound. Right here, we don't see that. But in Hebrews 11.21, Jacob is numbered with The faithful. He's part of that hall, that walk of faith that's set before us in Hebrew 11. So in verse 21, Jacob is numbered amongst the faithful. Um, In Genesis 47, verse 9, Jacob accounts himself a pilgrim. He accounts himself a pilgrim, as are all of those whose hearts are fixed upon our heavenly Savior, Christ. Not so for Esau. His heart is not heavenward, his heart is not fixed on things above. Where ours is, every Christian's heart should be fixed on things above. And the Lord says it, Our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look also for the coming Savior. So we look to Christ for all things, which is heaven word. Yeah, so we see in Genesis 27:28 that the order they are, God gives him, key, word, gives him the dew of heaven, that's one and two, gives him the fatness of the earth. These are both a gift from God, both the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. Superficially, we should understand that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will add all these things unto us, meaning that the physical things that we need, God will provide if our hearts are first heavenward. So that's the order that the blessing comes here. First the heavenly and then the earthly. But again, they're both a gift. Now, there's another promise here um, that is understood by what God says in Hosea chapter 14, verse 5. In Hosea 14, verse 5, it says, God's speaking. He is speaking of himself. He says, quote, I will be as the dew unto Israel. Israel, you know, not only means the nation of Israel, the people, but it's also the name that God's going to give to Jacob. I will be as the dew unto Israel. So Isaac, speaking by faith, is promising Jacob, whose name is going to be changed to Israel, that he will receive Christ. And this is a promise that applies to all of God's elect. Every one of God's elect receive Christ. And as such, God provides for our spiritual and our material needs. The nation of Israel never lacked for food and wine. When God would send them a famine for a brief period, the intent was to draw them near so he was ever working with them that they would have heavenly blessings. blessings. Um, So they never lacked for fertile fertile fields. God uh, took care of them and he provided for them. And they always dominated the Edomites, which of course are the descendants of Esau throughout most of their history. They were never subjugated by the Edomites, but rather received tributary from them, which is what the Lord says here in verse 29 that they are going to be subject to um, uh, the Israelites. Um. Okay. Eventually, historically speaking, the Edomites did throw the yoke off of Israel, which you read about in verse 40 of Genesis 27. But as you know, the Edomites eventually fell into obscurity and fell off the, uh, the history books um, when the trade routes shifted from that area. They became no more. Isaac says to Esau, what Isaac says to Esau is hardly a blessing. If you pick this up around verse 37, first he affirms that Jacob will be blessed. Then he reverses the order in which the blessings were given to Jacob. Um, um, but there's, like as I said, there's an important distinction here, and that's based on a play on words that you do not see in the English. In verse 37 we read, And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy lord, and all his brethren have I given him for servants. And with corn and wine I have sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? So he's affirming all of the blessings that he has given to Jacob. He's telling them that, yes, he's going to be, um, you are going to serve him. He's going to be superior to you and I am going to provide for him or God's going to provide for him. So the play on word comes in verse 39. It says in the Hebrew, behold, thy dwelling shall be not of the fatness of the earth, but from the fatness of the earth and from the dew of heaven from above. In verse 40, by thy sword shalt thou live. So he is not gonna enjoy the spiritual blessings, he's not gonna enjoy the material blessings in terms of agriculture, in terms of what the country can produce, but rather he is going to live by his sword. And of course, history proved that to be true. Edom, where the descendants of Esau lived, is literally away from the dew of heaven. It's an extremely arid land. Uh, They're going to live away from the fatness of the earth. It does not support uh, much agriculture. It does not support corn or wine. Um, And uh, most importantly, in terms of the spiritual context, they are going to dwell away from Christ, who is the dew from heaven. They were an idolatrous people, and what might be known of them today would be known uh, from their um, significant archaeological ruins of the various temples that we find in Petra, which is a city located now in Jordan. And if you saw the Indiana Jones um, and the Lost Crusade when they were looking for the Holy Grail, they had wonderful uh, film footage of those um, temples in Petra, literally carved directly into into a cliff. So all that Isaac prophesied by faith in these blessings came to pass superficially in the lives of the people that descended from Jacob and Esau, but spiritually it came true in the life of believers and unbelievers, which are the true object of the two nations that God spoke about when Rebecca uh, sought his counsel um, in Genesis 25:23. It was all ordained by our sovereign God And we see that the blessing was conferred upon Jacob. And this is the most important point. The blessing was conferred upon Jacob after he obeyed the commandment and was covered by the two good kids of the goat. So once again, we have the sovereignty of God in tension with the responsibility of man. Goats were taken from his father's flock. He obeyed his mother. He did what he was told. And he went into his father where he was thrice, invited to draw near. Three times he drew near and obeyed and he kissed The Father. So all of that takes place there in Genesis 27 helps us to appreciate that Christ is the atonement for man. He's the agency and means by which we are reconciled to God. And because he was obedient to the Father, he accomplished everything that um, God had intended him to accomplish in terms of our reconciliation with God. We can now approach God, we can draw nigh unto him, and we can indeed kiss him having been kissed by the Son as well. Amen.